Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello on, and we were ca- talking about hot weather last week. We didn't know nothing till this week. Oh my, it is ridiculous. Oh, my, oh it's ridiculous. That, last week was just a warm-up for this uh, 98, 99, 100-degree day. Oh, this is awful. It's been been crazy. And there's a lot going on in the sea services and a lot going on at the Naval Institute, despite the heat. Uh, so we've got two great guests on the show today. But before we get to them, I just wanted to highlight a couple things. First, the August proceedings, which is our annual Coast Guard-focused issue, went to the printers last week. It's another great one. Uh, and it features the three Coast Guard essay contest winners this year. Uh, so look for that in your uh, in your mailbox if you're a proceedings member uh, and, and you get the print issue of the magazine coming out uh, about the first of the month. Uh, and the second thing is we've got two essay contests uh, that are open now. Uh, so the annual Marine Corps essay contest has a deadline of 31 August. And our first ever naval fiction contest, which is co-sponsored with SimSec this year, has a deadline of 30 September. So for more information on both those contests, you can look in the July issue of Proceedings, where there's two full-page ads uh, for one for each of those contests. Or you can go to www.usni.org forward slash essay-contests, usni.org forward slash essay-contests for more information. As our listeners know, a lot of proceedings content is about strategy and how to make the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard better in this mission area or that. Uh, the recent fire on board the USS Bonhomme Richard in San Diego reminds us of the nitty gritty of being a sailor, of the life and death nature of serving on board a ship, even in peacetime. And so today we wanted to talk about damage control and shipboard firefighting. So we have online from Norfolk, Virginia, Master Chief Damage Controlman Danielle Saunders, who works at a float training group Atlantic. Good afternoon, Master Chief. Good afternoon, sir. And we also uh, have joining us from Omaha, Nebraska, for his second appearance on the Proceedings Podcast, we have Navy Intelligence Specialist John Miner. And some of our listeners and our readers will remember that John last year won the Enlisted Prize Essay Contest with his essay, Every Sailor a Damage Controlman, and this year he won the contest again with his essay, Putting the NCO in PO, Enhancing Petty Officers as NCOs, which is in the July issue of Proceedings. So Petty Officer Minor, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, Glad to be here, Bill. Good to see you, uh, Mr. Ward, again. We saw John out at uh, West, and that seems like a few lifetimes ago, doesn't it? Oh, my God, it does. Yeah, we saw him him at... uh, uh, at SNA in January, which seems like three lifetimes ago. And then, yeah, we saw him for the uh, recognition event for last year's uh, Enlisted Prize Essay Contest at West in San Diego at the beginning of March. And yeah, that does feel like a, a lifetime ago. So I wanted to go to uh, Master Chief Saunders uh, for the first question, which is this one. And I've been getting this from a number of my uh, you know friends and family who have never served on board a Navy ship. And they keep calling me or emailing me asking a question. So Navy ships are made of steel and aluminum, but how do they burn? Yes, that that comes out a lot. Um, Steel ships are basically a floating furnace, you know, and we have a lot of combustible material on board that make it grow and make those fires spread. Metal is a huge, huge conductor of heat. So when you put in all of the solid fuels for fires that come with rubber, cloth, and paper found throughout 
throughout the ship, you know, through our installation, mattresses, our birthing areas, even the furniture within the mess decks, electric cabling, rags. You have a ability to have a fire to continue to burn and spread throughout the ship. Wow. So it's probably a little early. I've, I've seen some things in the news uh, from USNI News and also uh, um, the, the CNO was out in San Diego just a couple of days ago talking about the Bonham Richard. Probably too early to know yet what the cause of the fire was. But I'm curious from uh, for either of you, what are you hearing from your um, you know shipmates or uh, fellow sailors out in San Diego about you know what was going on in uh, on the the firefighting efforts out there? I haven't received anything formal like you had mentioned. Nothing has come out that um, I've just seen lots and lots of pictures, and you know every picture I see you know, myself in and our shipmates in and see that, you know, they've been working hard and working as a team together. Well, what we do know is the fire started on a Sunday morning, which is probably the worst time. The Bonham Richard was having a maintenance availability period, which uh, we know from US and I news reporting and, and just from our own experience that that's a very, very vulnerable time for, for a ship. Um, and we know it took them upwards of four days to get it uh, put out, if not under control. The other thing that came out yesterday, and this is sort of a new kind of thing, is uh, some of the firefighters sharing the respirators uh, wound up giving each other COVID-19. So that's a very 2020 circumstance, and I, I don't think there's any precedent for that kind of a phenomenon. Um, but from the schoolhouse point of view, uh, Daniel, what 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 jumps out at you as to why this took so long, why it lasted so long, how intense the fire was? Uh, I think I've heard upwards of 1,200 degrees it burned. Obviously, it melted the island. Uh, we're seeing from some of the imagery coming out. Um, so, just in the, we're not asking you to get ahead of of where the investigators are on this, but just again from the schoolhouse point of view, what are you seeing there that? may cause concern and what are you seeing there that that strikes you as people were ready for it so from our side at the float training group we essentially train for this daily for, through all the ships to pass for their certifications it becomes a unique style in a shipboard and environment when you are in the shipyards because you don't have the ability to close your ship up like you could said zebra or have all of your abilities to close pathways that the fire will spread and like you said a limited duty section compared to when you're fully operational out to sea some of our listeners uh, maybe uh, maybe marines or civilians who haven't served on board a ship you know we all uh, live close by a, uh, a local fire department how does a fire department if you will uh, how does it differ on board a ship how how is um, a shipboard damage control team set up what are the sort of repair lockers if you will or the local fire department's uh, on board a ship like the Bonham Richard? So we always say a ship is like a floating city. So within every city, you have your teams that go to help support whatever casualty happens. Uh, so we are the fire department. Damage controlmen are the specialists. They'll make up with your at-sea fire parties. They'll be able to conduct a casualty without having to take the whole ship out of its normal operations. And then you have a specialized general quarters where all hands have to go and report to the repair locker to go combat whatever casualty that is, fire, flooding, toxic gas. Our repair lockers are spread throughout the ship and an ability that 
no matter where there was a casualty, we would be able to get to it within a dead amount of time. And so that you have there too in a casualty that's not out to sea without your whole crew. You have sailors coming from all over the ship to get to one designated locker. We know that at one point the uh, order was given to abandon ship. So how bad would things have to be for the damage effort, the damage control effort just to be ceased altogether um, at that point? And, and what's the, what's the, the strategy there? Let it burn out for a while before you try to tackle it again or what? I know a lot of uh, casual observers were sort of concerned when, when they heard about that part of what had happened to uh, Bonham Richard. So I've never been in any type of situation where I've ever had to abandon ship. Otherwise I would have made the news by now. Um, <laughs> But that must have been an order where they were making sure that there was going to be no personnel injuries. You know, under a high heat stress, maybe firefighting endurance can sometimes be limited to under 10 minutes of fully firefighting. And if they were um, looking like they were going to have more injuries than they were going to have defeat of the fire, that must have been a call that was made there. So, John, your essay, in fact, last time you were on the podcast, we were talking about your essay called Every Sailor a Damage Controlman. Um, so what strikes you as you heard about the Bonham Richard, I guess we can call it a disaster? So I think what struck out to me most was the, the human element. Uh, what, just like you guys, I've had a lot of family, a lot of friends asking, how could this happen? You know, this is the biggest fire. I, I would hazard to say this is the biggest fire we've had since the Forstal. This is going to be an event that sailors are going to learn about in boot camp. This is history in the making for the Navy right now. And it's a disaster from, you know, a platform perspective and from a perspective of the ship was not prepared to fight a fire. It died on the operating table. It never had a chance to fight for itself based off of what was tagged out and everything. But going back to the, the human aspect of it, the damage control aspect of it, I think it's one of the greatest success, success stories the Navy's had in a long time. When you look at the amount of sailors, commands didn't have to phone call people. They had fire teams from other ships, from other commands, lining up, ready to go into fight. And I would hazard to say right now that the San Diego waterfront is incredibly qualified to fight fires right now. I talked to a couple of DCs out there that were uh, on the on the waterfront fighting this fire. They've had so many people that they didn't just show up to fight the fire. They showed up, fought the fire, and then printed out PQSs and got signatures. They turned a disaster into a training opportunity. So, John, uh, for our listeners who may not have heard last year's podcast or read your, your article from last year, you were basically arguing that, you know, in the time of great power competition, at a time when the United States is facing peer level competitors, uh, you know, at sea again, China and Russia, name to name the, the two most, uh, um, you know, of concern right now, that every sailor needed to get back to the, the basics, uh, sort of every Marine, a rifleman, every sailor, a damage controlman, you know, that this, the ability to fight fires, the ability to, to, uh, to save a ship if it's been attacked, um, came down to, to uh, again, being, you know, the, the primary responsibility of everybody on board a ship. So, um and here we are, you know, with a, a, a large ship, an LHD in port, you know, uh, undergoing a, a maintenance availability, um, and, a, and a fire breaks out. As you just pointed out, you know, a lot of a lot of sailors just probably got their PQS checked off for fighting fires. Um, 
take us back a little bit to your article from last year and, and um, you know, how, uh, what kind of reception it got, what kind of feedback you got on that, that, that idea about, hey, sailors, we got to get ready for, uh, for fighting major damage again. The article, I think, was interesting because, as you, you pointed out in the introduction, I, I'm an intelligence specialist. Um, I have almost no business on this call right now next to DC Master Chief. I, I don't. But the, the reason I'm here is because I, all I did was do a good job of articulating what I think damage control men and whole technicians have been talking about for years is that we, we take damage control seriously, but at the same time, when commands and ships are going through their training cycle, it, it's a check off on the list. We don't have that same equivalency of how the Marine Corps trains psychologically and truly inculcates in their culture, you know, lethality. The same lethality which the Marine Corps values intensely, we need to value in that damage control. DC Master Chief, DC-1s and DCCs on ships, DCAs on ships know that their sailors value damage control beyond just being oh, I have to check on board the ship, this is a prerequisite for surface, so that I get a good eval. This is more than an eval bullet, this is life and death. And as you said earlier, that, that that is a reality that has never been more aware on the waterfront than it is in San Diego right now. So it's kind of an I told uh, you so moment of sorts. Um, not that that's how you're framing it, but Master Chief, I, I want to back up again. Again, most of our listeners are not damage control specialists and I don't want to talk specifically about BHR because uh, I know that that that's not a position you want to be put in. And, and uh, as Bill said, the report isn't out yet, so we're not going to get ahead of the facts. But let's just go through some of the basics of damage control. How would this evolve? Because I'm thinking in all my experience in aircraft carriers, every once in a while you'd hear on the WinMC, you know, fire control party to dot, dot, dot. And then you'd say, stand down from fire control party, right? So it would always be like, oh, there was a fire somewhere uh, and it got put out, right? And yeah. so we yeah. aviators never really even had to leave our racks. You know, was, you guys are really good uh, at allowing us to get our necessary required sleep in accordance with NATOPS. Um, but how would this go? First, there's the discovery of the fire. Right. And so what yes. is what what how does it unfold and, and how did, how does it get to a point where it's um, now it's beyond where the team would want it? And then what are the steps after that? And I'm not talking specifically about BHR, but just in yes. in in theory. So once the fire is investigated and called away, you'll have your rapid response team go to the actual scene of the fire. And that's um, usually your fire marshal, your fire marshal of that duty day or the fire marshal of your at sea fire party. I'm walking around and all of a sudden I'm like, oh gee, there's a fire, right? I'm a sailor. I'm mm -hmm. not a damage control person. What what would I do? You call it away. Um, you call DC Central or you call the pilot house. Uh, every space has a unique, as you know, attack number. So you would give the location and the report of the casualty, whether it's white smoke, black smoke, you have flooding, you have actual flames, you have a personnel casualty, and you would report that. And that would get, actually, they would, depending on the casualty, they would ring the bells. And you, as the response team, would know where to go. So if I'm the rapid response team, I report directly to the scene. If I'm the supporting repair personnel, I report to the locker that's associated with the casualty. And like you said, the analogy is a, a city with a fire department. 
So you show up and you the, the now the damage control team assesses the nature of the the fire and they and then they decide what sort of agent they need to put it out and they decide whether they need like more assistance to take care of it and and they figure out how they're going to isolate it. So what are, what are the details that's associated with with those kinds of things? So when you first report on scene, if you were the rapid response team, you're going to try to isolate and try to contain or extinguish that fire or whatever casualty it is that you can do. And um, along with that, you're, you're making preps and you're making thoughts of what agent do I need to do? Is there CO2 around the corner? Can I put the Charlie fire out with the CO2? Is it a class alpha fire? Do I need to start um, getting the hose and putting water on it or backing out and shutting and setting boundaries and waiting to be turned over with the on-scene leader of the fire team. So say, say I couldn't enter, say I couldn't enter. The fire was, um, you know, it was too, too much to go in without any personal protective equipment, firefighter ensemble or a breathing apparatus. I would secure the space and stand by for the on-scene leader and do a turnover with that fire party when they arrived on the scene. So in this case, um, or in the theoretical case, if, if, if you can't get it under control, Right, so you're keeping the OOD and the DCA and all these folks as the fire team leader apprised of how it's going, um, right? At any given moment, or is it yes. periodically? Um, and and so it's either like, sir, we get we're good to go. It's under control. You know, uh, stand down from from Firewatch or whatever the words would be, <laughs> or it's like, um, well, no, we it's not under control. In fact, it's spreading, and our our efforts to contain it. Uh, through hatch closures or other things are not working. At what point uh, would it, if you're peer side, would you call the local fire department? When you are in the shipyard, you call them immediately. The officer of the deck should be contacting them. Okay, so that's not unusual that's, that they showed yeah, up. Yeah, that's in all case. in yeah. accordance with uh, okay. 80-10 80, instruction for firefighting within the shipyard environment. Okay. To take it back to BHR, things got out of control um, there was, again, I, all I know is what I've read. Um, there was a large explosion at some point. Um, I'm not familiar with Amphibs being an aircraft carrier guy. I did do one of my midshipman cruises on an Amphib, but uh, um, that was the old Bella Wood back in the day. Um, I don't know what a V hold is where, where apparently this thing started, but I understand it's where Marines keep their gear when Marines are embarked. Again, in a shipyard, there's a lot of cardboard and and rags and things just kind of sitting around um and i think that uh again i don't have the facts in front of me but what i understand from the subject matter experts this was the worst possible circumstance at the worst possible time for something like this to happen yes and in the shipboard you have an additional risk with grinding welding a lot of hot work and whatnot getting done to complete your jobs and that you have throughout your yard period yeah, that's a great point. That is a great point. And uh, it's, uh, at Recruit Training Center in Great Lakes, over the past couple of years, there's been a, a significant emphasis put on getting back to basics and damage control, uh, training you know, young seamen right out of the get-go in, in uh, Great Lakes, uh, how to be damage control um, and, and fire party members, et cetera. What are you seeing in, in your experience uh, being on board ships, or particularly for you, Master Chief, uh, at ATG, do you get the sense that uh, sailors these days are better equipped uh, at an early age to be 
you know, damage control assistance or to be, uh, to be young firefighters, uh, when they show up to a ship. I've always seen them very eager. They want to learn. Uh, a lot of times senior leaders don't have that time to take the time and actually do hand over foot, do the crawl, walk, run aspects with their sailors because they're, you know, they have the actual, the daily things of our jobs, the emails, the, the workload. So being a trainer, you're able to invest that extra time in with them. And when we're out there, they're hungry. They're, they take a lot of it out. And I think that's one of the best things that I tell all my chiefs when they report to ATG is that this is the best place to be a chief because you get to have that one-on-one time with sailors every day, just training. And they are eager and they are hungry and they teach me stuff every day. You know, I, I've never used my smartphone as much as I've ever seen them use. They take pictures of things on their smartphones. They don't write things down anymore. You know, it's just a lot. They'll take pictures of documents and stuff that we have that they can go back and and look at, but they really are hungry to learn. Dang kids with their phones. (laughs) Um, So, Master Chief, from your point of view, being there at the ATG, because a lot of times, uh, the particularly the, the trade press, wants to paint these sort of things as a systemic issue and the Navy's having these huge problems and so forth and so on. Um, from a damage control, and this is building what Bill just asked, from a damage control standpoint, are you satisfied that, that the, the waterfront is focused appropriately and was focused appropriately before this point on the issues surrounding damage control? Do you have any issue with funding or schoolhouse uh, resources or anything like that? Or is this just a, this is what happens sometimes out there? I believe it's what happens sometimes out there. I don't believe anybody went to work that day and wanted to, you know, have that happen or look for it. But the potential is always, the potential is always there. And if you really look at the grand scheme of things is if it was so systematic, there would have been a lot more, you know, a lot of stuff gets contained easily. A lot of fires, like you said, when you were on deployment and whatnot underway, a lot of fires would happen that you never even had to get up for. And we have a lot of fires throughout the shipyard and throughout the stuff that we contain and control easily. It's good to hear that you feel like this is not a systemic issue. Um, This isn't something that the Navy has been ignoring for years and years, and now it finally caught up to us, because that's sort of what we got out of the collisions in the summer of 2017, was the focus had walked away from basic, you know, ready to put to sea and uh, those sorts of things. But that's not what we think will come out of this. Is that correct? I, I believe so. And I believe that there's a lot of things to learn from every situation and to get better. And a lot of times when major, you know, catastrophes happen, there's always a lesson learned. We haven't really had any great lessons learned since the USS Cole. So it, are we not advanced in gear? We aren't. But at the same notion, a lot of the old stuff we've always used for years, like message blanks and some of the basic things are basically the critical things that get us get us going get us moving a lot of the high-tech stuff won't operate in our environments well it's it's interesting you, you point out uh, the Fitzgerald and the McCain award a second ago that the only silver lining that I was aware of in in the reports that came out after those was the damage control lessons that sailors uh, really performed incredibly well in the damage control and could controlling and stopping the flooding and in isolating that damage and keeping those ships afloat 
even uh, with huge gashes below the waterline, right? So uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, Master Chief, that um, the lessons from both of those uh, collisions at sea are probably inculcated into the types of training that you do at, uh, at ATG land. Yes, we, we try to bring as much realism to all of the sailors because that really is what, what gets, gets their attention. So, John, when you think back to when you weren't hanging out at off at Air Force Base, when you were an IS shipboard, what was your attitude towards damage uh, control? Did, did you feel like you were a guy who might have to pitch in? Did you feel like you were adequately trained in the event you did have to gooseneck a hose or something else? Did you know the difference between a Class Alpha and Class Charlie Fire? How do you feel about your training? So I definitely felt um, I was more than adequately trained. My DCs on my ship were great. A lot of that, though, came comes down to personality. Because uh, at the time I wrote that article, or the experience I went through that led to me writing that article was pre-Fitzgerald and pre-McCain. Not that the Navy was shirking on damage control before then, but it kind of comes and goes in cycles. It had been 15 years since the, uh, the coal. So there's chiefs and officers that remember viscerally and vividly the experience of just being in the Navy when that incident occurred. But, you know, my peers as a E5 and E6, we we didn't live through that as a sailor. You know, the Fitzgerald and McCain and now the Von Homer Shard are events in the collective memory of those sailors. Um, it really, what it comes down to, I think, is sailors have to, and Master Chief pointed it out, like they're, they're hungry to be trained. And really, it comes down to how do we motivate the ones that don't to get them to understand the impact of what they're learning. Because there's too many sailors that, in my opinion, that don't want to take on the responsibilities. That you know, they're there to get their GI Bill, to get their three hots in a cot, and you know, push on through. And we have to understand we don't know who's going to be the one to discover a fire, and we don't know who's going to be the one to survive a missile. We don't know who all is going to be around when you know excrement hits the ceiling apparatus. You know, you mentioned the, the the sort of touch points, the coal being one for your predecessors or your seniors. Uh, for Ward and I, Ward mentioned the the fire on board the Forrestal, which happened back in the 1960s. And you know, going through the Naval Academy in the in the 70s and 80s as we did, uh, and then going through damage control training as as junior officers as we did, that was the touch point for our generation. Right? Was this conflagration that happened? Uh, on board the USS Forrestal aircraft carrier um, while it was on the line, if you will, uh, for operations in Vietnam, uh, a, a, a fire that broke out on the flight deck with, I think it was a Zuni rocket that went off and, and ignited a uh, fire on board a, a, an aircraft. And then that the fuel spilled down into the uh, hangar bay, which caused a secondary conflagration that then spilled down even further in the ship. And I mean, what a horrific Thing. And I think they fought that fire at sea as long as uh, firefighters fought on the, the Bonham Richard this, this past week. Well, but speaking about of the lessons learned, because I remember, Bill, very distinctly um, the being shown that film. Actually, this is before this thing right. called videotape. We were being shown that film during plebe summer. And our detailers were, you know, sort of instilling in us that we all had responsibilities. But they 
what they pointed out, and I'm sure this will resonate with the Master Chief, because maybe they still teach that. One of the problems with how they fought the fire on Forrestal, and oh, by the way, uh, if people don't remember, John McCain was on the flight deck uh, when that happened. He was on the fantail um, manning up an A-4, and he was very close to the uh, the airplane that got hit. I think it was a Phantom that got hit by a, a F-8 Zuni rocket. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he wound up getting out, jumping off the nose and running across the flight deck. But what they pointed out was that the AFFF was washed away by water and therefore it was uneffective. Effective. Right. And, and so and, and then the water ran down into the holes that had been blown into the flight deck and caused additional fires in the, the decks below. Um, I'll, I'll never forget that, right? And this was the summer of 1978, which was a long time ago. Uh, but that stuck with me. So again, this is a, a pitch for the schoolhouse and the lessons learned there. Uh, if we're doing our jobs right, those sorts of uh, lessons should be in our DNA from, from day one. Uh, that video you're referring to is a trial by fire. And yes, we still watch it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, wow. It was called a film back when I was, it was a 16 millimeter <laughs> film. <laughs> One of those real to real things. Yeah. Back before there were even cassettes, right? This is way back. And that, now it's on YouTube. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, yeah. That the sailors are watching on their phone. See, it yeah. all comes yeah. full circle. <laughs> hey, well, I think there's probably a segue here. I'm going to, I'm going to stretch a little bit for um, just to get, to a short conversation about uh, uh, Petty Officer Miner's winning essay from this year, which was uh, put the put the NCO and PO. So, uh, Petty Officer Miner, one of the things that you wrote about was, you know, empowering Navy Petty Officers to to have a little bit more authority, as you've seen in, in a joint assignment out there at Off Force Base and at U.S. Strategic Command, working with. Uh, with petty officers or, or sorry, with NCOs from other services. So just uh, talk us through the, maybe the 30,000 foot view of, of uh, your essay that won this year. Um, and I think that there's probably some um, connection with empowerment of everything from damage control teams to, you know, just petty officers uh, in charge of work centers and, and being work center supervisors in the Navy. The 30,000 foot view, if I had to sum it up in one word, not one word, but one sentence is the Navy does not systemically teach leadership in institutions. Uh, for as long as I've been in, it's been the petty officer and dog local to the command. Um, and I look at the other services, they have the more formalized brick and mortar leadership academies, starting even at the E4 level. And in my article, I, I give credence to the fact that Navy is moving to that. But it's still so novel and new. We don't know how that construct is going to play out. And even after it's been perfected, it's going to take five to 10 years before we have a full generation of mid-range enlisted NCOs that have that knowledge that the Navy is now looking to uh, instill to improve the basis of our, of our leadership training. And that's not to say that, you know, the Navy is bad at training leadership. We've always valued it in, at OJT. We just valued it differently in our service culture. Um, but I just remember a conversation I had with a, a chief master sergeant, uh, E9 Air Force on the base. He was asking me about, you know, what leadership courses have I been to? We talked about the petty officer and doc. And so he asked me, he's like, okay, 
when do you actually go somewhere to learn leadership for like four to six weeks? And my answer to him was that was, well, if I make chief, that that's the first real instance in the enlisted side where you are truly kind of extracted out of your work center and put through a leadership indoctrination for the Navy is at the E6 to E7 jump. Um, and I just find that to be really, I, I can't think of, the, of a right word besides bad. When <laughs> I look at, like I sent my IS3s to uh, the Airmen Leadership Academy here on Offutt Air Force Base. So they were out of their work center for almost two months learning about leadership. It's so, it is just more beneficial because you get what you, you get what you pay for. The Navy does not pay for enlisted leadership until that E6, E7 area. So we have an entire generation of petty officers that are inconsistently trained for leadership. You're going to have great petty officers by the virtue of their chiefs or their officers who mentored them or by the sheer virtue of their personality who are going to be great leaders. But how do we raise the bar on those that don't have the natural personality for it? or have the rare misfortune of not having a great chief or a great officer to mentor them. And John, you, you point out in your article that um, the way that officers uh, look at NCOs and the other services in terms of the, uh, the, the amount of respect that they give them is different as well. Uh, not just the amount of respect, but also the, uh, the tendency to, to delegate tasks down to, uh, to NCOs, you know, below what w- what would in the Navy be the chief petty officer level into the, you know, the E5 is E5s and E6s in the other services. Uh, talk about that and what you've seen when you've uh, been working with other services. So I, I want to start with saying that I think I've started my, my entire career has been at least joint light. My first tour was with the CVs in Afghanistan supporting a, a joint task force out there and uh, naturally spending a lot of time in the Marines. Then I went to an LHD, so I spent even more time with the Marines, and now I'm here in the full joint environment. So my entire career has been nothing, but I've never been to a command where it's all Navy, just never in my career. And I have always seen just this massive difference. I think the most powerful rank in the DOD is probably a Marine sergeant. When you look at the amount of responsibility and accountability they have commiserate their time in and their actual pay grade. I think there's a lot of great second-class petty officers, but I don't think a second-class petty officer gets the same respect from an Air Force second lieutenant as a Marine Corps sergeant does, because we don't have, as a Navy, that kind of reputation around our NCOs. And that's kind of what we want to get to. And I think I put in my article verbatim that the day that a second-class petty officer is respected as an E-5 the same way a Marine Corps sergeant is, is a day that the Navy has this massive force multiplier (laughs) in how our enlisted cadre is able to perform tasks. And I know I wrote in that article a lot, what you talked on is the officer side of the house. And that was um, was the side of the article that I had a lot of fun writing professionally because it is a fine line to weave to call out's not the right word, but to critique officer culture as an enlisted man. But the, the point it boils down to is that the navies, the broad navies, not distrust, but the centralization of authority and responsibility and accountability up in the officer side of the house, because 
the officers, you know, one mistake and their careers are done because we're a no, essentially a no flaw Navy for the most part. So there's that, always that fear and that anxiety that somebody's going to mess up and they're going to lose their career for it. So they centralize the decision making at their desks, but that takes it away from us on the deck plates. And th- I mean, there's that great quote that I uh, went and found from the, the archives from uh, an officer in the 30s that talks about this same thing, that when the officer takes away the authority from the petty officer, he robs the Navy of the opportunity for that petty officer to grow. You know, it, when it, an ideal Navy to me is where one where the officers know how to truly respect positional authority. You know, they could be out there helping us line handle or fight fires or do whatever task it is that we are tactically engaged in, but do not take command when you are there by virtue of being an officer. Defer to your petty officers and their expertise. Give us the opportunity to lead and trust and empower us. I love it. I love it. And so two things on what you just said. First, this is why the Independent Forum exists, is to give second-class petty officers, especially ones as articulate and as uh, productively based as you are, John, um, the forum to have these kinds of conversations. And two, any officer who isn't willing to hear this is part of the problem. I always loved it when one of, uh, you know, a guy from one of the work centers when I was a divo would come out and go, hey, uh, Lieutenant Carroll, I, I, you know, I just thought you'd like to hear that this is how we in, we interpreted what you just said. Is that what you meant? They're like, <laughs> no, that's not at all what I meant. And they go, well, that's how the guys. And so you're like, thank God you said that because now I got some work to do to fix that impression. Right. So absent that guy saying that, and it wasn't the chief, it wasn't the first class petty officer. It was, you know, a third class or a second class that would say that completely candidly kind of going sidebar as I was walking through the passageway. Um, and those guys are the moral uh, sort of compass, the, the, the moral courage of the fleet. So I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And having, uh, you know, my brother was a Marine Corps enlisted guy, sergeant, staff sergeant. So I hear it from him a lot. But the way you framed it, but that's correct. And my son is a captain in the reserves and the Marines. Um, so I think that's exactly right. When we reach that level of respect in the Navy, then we've actually solved a big problem. And that's a fair way to frame it. That's a great goal. And I'm thinking if I'm the CEO, what can I do? If I'm uh, you know, one of the department heads, what can I do? Um, I, that's just a great way to look at it. Yeah, I'm curious if uh, Master Chief Saunders, if you have any any thoughts on that, any any comments on Sort of the um, tendency in the Navy, whether whether the 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 emphasis is correct on uh, petty officers or you know in on the goat locker or also uh, within the the wardroom. Yeah, uh, yes. Um, I joined the Navy in '98, and I honestly thought some of the most powerful people were BM2s because those bosun mates just looked at you, and the the deck seamen ran ran about. And over the years, as a Navy when someone made third class, someone made second class, they continually give up power. You give your power away and you give your authority away when you don't stop things or you don't address things that are going wrong in front of you. And think, you know, whether it's a uniform infraction, somebody not doing the right thing, someone not doing maintenance correctly. And over time, then you lose your credibility as that leader. Um, my late husband was in the Marine Corps and we came up in the military together until he passed. But in the, when he made sergeant, I remember him going away and going to a sergeant's course 
and just being, you know, envious of wish I had had that. And in turn, when I went through my week long of petty officer indoctrination, I was so excited to go. And and I really left there, you know, not, not fulfilled. So I, I think until the Navy gets a program, you as a sailor, it's on your own to seek that out, get a mentor and learn how to effectively be a leader. Well, I don't think we could wrap it up any better than that. Um, this was a great conversation. I wanted to thank Master Chief Damage Controlman Danielle Saunders uh, calling in from a float training group Atlantic. Master Chief, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, Petty Officer uh, Intelligence Specialist First Class John Miner calling in from Omaha, Nebraska, uh, just a couple weeks before going back to sea on the USS Arlington down in Norfolk. Uh, Petty Officer Miner, always great talking to you. Great to be here, Bill and uh, Master Chief. I uh, can't wait to run a DC drill in front of you. Yes, I can't wait to see it. Nice. All right. Fantastic. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Join us again next week. And until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you soon. <laughs>